In this episode, I discuss how trauma actually happens and the direct link to the experience of shame. My name is Justin Sinceri, licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to episode five of the Polyvagal Podcast. couple quick announcements. I've started to use my Instagram account um, for Justin LMFT. Uh, Mostly right now it is just these sort of daily check-ins about um, state shifts. So the, you know, my my ventral vagal moment, which is my safe and social moment. There's something that happened that day or a photo or a quick video I make about just me sort of talking for a minute Um, or, you know, a shift down the ladder. For example, today uh, I got my door uh, it didn't get dinged. I was park. I was parking, sitting in my car, listening to a podcast before I went into Safeway to do my my weekly shopping. Right, um, which I love to do by myself because that's that's my that's my like personal time just to listen to a podcast and do my shopping while um, the family's at home. That's kind of my my little time away. Anyhow, I'm sitting listening in the parking lot for a moment, and someone flings their door open, hits my passenger side door. Um, definitely dropped down the ladder real quick. Um, pretty upset that it was, uh, you know, that happened, right? So I get out and this person could not wait to leave. They dropped down the ladder as well. They were back in their car out. I put my hand out like, Hey, slow down here. Took a look at it and they were like basically leaving. Um, I saw the person, she did not look happy at all. Um, she was, I couldn't hear cause her windows were closed obviously, but saying something, not a happy face not giving safe and social cues, not willing to take responsibility. Um, her teenager in the car, uh, in the passenger seat seemed pretty confused about everything going on. So she was down the ladder as well. Um, I definitely had some stories in my head that matched my state and, uh, that was kind of it. So that was my shift down the ladder for the day that, uh, definitely stuck with me for a little bit, but I was able to, uh, discharge that sympathetic energy by walking around the store with a shopping cart and playing the story out in my head about how that could have gone had this person simply stopped and talked with me and said, hey, I'm sorry about that because it wasn't that big of a deal. Anyhow, I've begun to use my Instagram account, uh, take that a little bit more seriously. I have, I'm have i going to start putting some resources there as well for people to use. It's called Polyvagal 101. It's in my highlights and I'm hoping to keep building on that. There's lots of kindness going around. That's announcement number one. Announcement number two is lots of kindness going around, which I so appreciate. I love that professionals are enjoying this. I love that people can listen to this on Sunday night while they're doing their meal prep, and it brings them a, a moment of peace. I love that people can listen or talk about this and refer their uh, massage therapy clients to this um, as they're giving them massages on the beach of Hawaii. I'm not making these scenarios up. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for that. But what I really love, this week I got a DM from someone that um, spoke on the level of not on a professional level, but as someone who identifies with what is being said and appreciates that I'm doing so respectfully. And a number of people have said that, and I'm happy to keep doing that, of course. Uh, But it was nice to hear someone, it sounded like what she got out of this was to realize she's not, that she is normal. To realize that the way she feels, what she's going through, um, 
that she's normal. So that that's what I'm excited about is that someone who's not a professional. I, I love all my professionals that listen to this, but someone who's not a professional is hearing this and saying that makes sense, and that applies to me, and I'm benefiting from that. That's got me excited. So yeah, that that's that. All right. So our topic. Oh, actually, before we go to our topic, let's do something a little fun here. Um, I've played music clips in the past, which I, I like to do. I've done a couple of those. This time, uh, so last time we talked about shutdown, and obviously a lot of parallels between shutdown and um, depression, um, flat affect, uh, you know, not making eye contact, uh, the body just being in the shutdown state, having a hard time being mobilized, uh, monotone voice, all these kind of things. So here's a quick now. Who when I say depression. I know people think about Eeyore, right? So here's a quick comparison of Eeyore's voice. Let's, let's do the first one, right? Just a quick clip. It's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it. I don't know what the context of, I don't know why he says that. But you hear the voice, you hear that, the shutdown state sort of voice. This is not someone who's mobilized and wants to run or fight. He's not panicking. Eeyore is just sort of in the state of sort of being shut down. Let's see it here one more time. Is not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it. Now let's listen to this one, and you, let's, let's, let's listen to this one here. It works. Didn't expect it to, but I'm kind of glad. Now we hear his voice has changed, and the whole context of what he's ch- saying, I don't know what the context is, but um, he's saying it works. There's something positive happening in his life, I don't know what it is, but you hear his voice going up the ladder. It's becoming more prosodic. Remember that word prosody? Um, it's becoming more prosodic, a little bit more sing-songy. We're able to understand the, even though we don't know what's happening, something is positive. We hear it in his voice that something is lifting his spirits a little bit. Let's listen to that one more time. It works. Didn't expect it to, but I'm kind of glad. He just, right right at the end, they're glad, like the voice carries up. And uh, we, we feel that along with him in our bodies, do we not? All right, the topic for the day here, and again, this is, this is basically my weekly warning here. This is a heavy one. This is trauma and shame. We're really getting to the heart of a lot of this stuff. This is going to feel a lot more personal. If it hasn't the past four, I'm going to guarantee that it, if you're a survivor, this is going to become a lot more personal. Um, so please, as always, put yourself first, please. There are links in the description, just like last time, um, for any crisis or suicide help if you if that's where you're at. Uh, please use those resources. Um, I listed a few of them. Uh, I hope that's enough. Um, but, you know, put yourself first. Take a break, walk away, do what you got to do. Things are, I think... I really believe, I really believe that things are going to be clicking into place for you. Hopefully, I hope it's like a gentle game of Tetris where the pieces just fall in line, all right? That's that's my hope. But realistically, it might be more like a stack of blocks being shoved to the floor by a toddler. Like maybe you have this this, um, building or this little... I don't know, block skyscraper constructed in your mind uh, and in, in your body to keep your pieces together. And some toddler, I guess me, I'm the toddler right now, and I'm going to come along and smash those. I hope that's not what's happening. I'd rather be that, you know, that, that odd 
Tetris piece falling into <laughs> falling into place, um, just to make things feel like oh, that makes sense. I get it, and I, and I hope that there's some shame lifted. I hope there's some normalization happening, some validation happening. Um, that's my hope here. So your pieces may, might come together, but they they could also shatter. I really want you to put yourself first. Please, please, please. Okay. All right. So we've talked about so far. We haven't actually talked directly about what trauma is and the mechanism of how it happens. We've kind of touched upon it. It's definitely been in there, but we haven't talked directly about it. What we have talked more about is developmental or complex trauma. Um, this goes by a couple different names. Developmental um, trauma is one of them. Um, Vanderkoek, um, Bessel van der Kolk, who is the author of, oh boy, of course it leaves my mind right when I'm talking about it. He's the author of The Body Keeps the Score. There we go. Um, he attempted to, and I, I don't know where this is at. I don't know where, the, where it's at right now, but he and others, I'm sure, created a DSM diagnosis called Developmental Trauma Disorder, and the, they submitted it to the DSM crew, I don't know, you know, committee, and it, it, um, did not make it into DSM-5. Seems like it should, though. And uh, that's that might be worth talking about in a different episode. But um, so developmental trauma, sorry, developmental trauma disorder. That's kind of, We've kind of talked about that where, this, and this is one avenue of trauma, where you're kind of in this chronic state of flight and fight just based on necessity. And that's our, our autonomic nervous system, our, our bodies get used to being in that state. And that is in and of itself, traumatic. That that um, that's generally just that's traumatic. We lose our ability to go into safe and social mode, or to stay there, or to tolerate being in safe and social mode state, um, because of these ongoing complex or developmental traumas. Um, all the stuff we've talked about, you know, things like abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Um, abandonment, neglect, all those things are these ongoing uh, developmental traumas. So, P- And also PTSD, I haven't talked about this at all, but it does not cover the history and the wide range of behavior problems that are more associated with these developmental traumas. I think PTSD, it's really, it's quite limited. And again, that, that, that probably is appropriate for a, another episode to go deeper into. But um, just so far, we haven't actually talked enough about trauma and how it works that's that's what we're doing today the first thing we want to talk about though is let's let's go back to shutdown mode right shutdown as i mentioned last time briefly shutdown is different in wild animals than it is in human beings there's something that new word here called tonic immobility new phrase tonic immobility this is where animals enter the freeze state the shutdown state without a struggle now, like I said last time, there's many paths to tonic immobility, uh, such as a predator going into shutdown mode to get their prey, or a kitten being carried by its mom, or um, the, or maybe even a, a survival technique of the prey. Then we go into shutdown mode, but there's no struggle. We just sort of not we, but animals just go into it and can come out, can come out of it. So wild animals will spontaneously recover from trauma, I'm sorry, from tonic immobility in a matter of seconds to minutes, usually after the predator has left the scene and they have no trauma symptoms. They just, they literally walk off. Like they, they're fine. 
more or less. Uh, they're, they're fine. They're, they they just go back to what they're doing. Um, there's a there's I I'll, I'm gonna put a bunch of there's gonna be a bunch of links in in the uh, description here to some videos and resources and whatnot. There's one of them that's a shark video where it's um, sort of getting in the way of these divers doing whatever they're doing down there. And so one of the divers says, well, let's basically let's put this one into um, tonic immobility. And all he does is rub the the nose of the shark and it, go, it goes into this weird trance-like state. But it's not afraid and it's not fighting it for its life. Um, it's being triggered by the rubbing of its like nose area. And it's really freaky to watch, honestly, because it kind of just... You can tell it's like sort of passed out underwater in a way, but it's still alive. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, it simply swims away and it's fine because there was no fear associated with going into shutdown mode. So, but, but if the animal is frightened before or during going into shutdown mode or going into tonic immobility, it will stay in tonic immobility for much longer. This is called fear-induced tonic immobility. Peter Levine talks about this as well, but this is called fear-induced tonic immobility. And like, think about it. Wild animals are constantly under threat of death, yet they show no signs or no symptoms of trauma. Um, they go into the state and they come right out of it. They work their way up the ladder. They, they burn off any sympathetic energy if, if they need it. Um, like if they're in sympathetic mode, they sprint and run away, and they that burns it off. They go back to their herd. They're safe and social. Um, they're the other or mammals are, and they're okay. So fear-induced tonic immobility is different than tonic immobility. So to- fear-induced tonic immobility is the shutdown of tonic immobility plus fear. It's TI plus fear. It's shutdown plus sympathetic arousal of flight and fight. That's what really the fear is. It's, it's the experience, the feeling of sympathetic arousal of flight and fight. So shutdown plus flight and fight at the same time. So this would be like slamming on the accelerator in your car and the brake at the same time. It's not just the freeze response by itself. It is, honestly, I have no idea what would happen if you slam on the brake and the accelerator at the same time. Uh, probably nothing good. I can't imagine anything good would come out of that. But that that's the best sort of metaphor that I can think of for, for what's happening here is we're way down the ladder. We're, we're going to shut down while being sympathetically aroused. And this could be, this could be like a forced immobilization. Like we're, we're sympathetically aroused. We're trying to fight or flight and we are being forced into or overpowered into immobility. All right, so it's not just this freeze response by itself. It's the two things at the same time. There's, again, there's going to be a link in the in the description. Um, there's this polar, polar bear video. Uh, this is um, something that Peter Ravine goes way into. Definitely worth listening or watching the video um, that I linked to. Uh, but there's this polar, video, polar bear being chased by um, human beings in a helicopter. Not for funsies, but for because they are attempting to tranquilize it to study the size of its paws or so, I don't know something like that so it, it is running from the helicopter and imagine like it has no I don't think it understands what a helicopter is at all right it hears the horrible loud uh, deep sound of the of the uh, blades 
spinning and the engine, I'm sure, um, it's, it's above and behind it. It's powerful. It's loud. So this thing is obviously terrifying to the polar bear. It's running away. So it's in sympathetic arousal. It's, it's, fl it's flight. Um, in the video, I think they also mentioned, or Peter Luby may have said that in the video, that the polar bear is also like gnashing its teeth. So it's showing some aggression. So it's down the ladder, way down the ladder. It's using its legs to escape, but it's also, yeah, so it's also kind of showing some aggression. And But when it's hit with the tranquilizer dart, it's forced into a shutdown state while fleeing for its life. So it needs to discharge the sympathetic energy while also coming out of the free state. But it, it has the two things going on at once. And in the video, it shakes, it trembles. Um, I think Peter Levine says that it's, and it's really, it's very, it's very like, the, the, the movements of the, of the legs are very small, but basically it's discharging the sympathetic energy by moving its legs around as if it were running, even though it's still kind of like in this passed out sort of state. Um, and then it starts taking in these spontaneous, huge um, breaths, um, huge gasps to sort of kind of get the nervous system back to a baseline. Um, and it comes out, it's fine. And it's uncomfortable to watch, but it is... It's it the, for the polar bear. It's natural. It allowed the tranquilizer was not, but but coming out of the state was natural. It's it simply allows the process to happen. And he, now, of course, I'm obviously you're wondering. Well, what about human beings? Do we do the same thing? I, I do. Yeah, I think that human beings have the potential to go through the same process, but we don't allow that to happen. There's all I haven't looked too far into this whatsoever, but I I've heard from other therapists about um, there's like a shaking or trembling thing going on um, that's sort of catching uh, some interest, I guess, as a way to deal with trauma, and that comes from this. So the polar bear in this example is not choosing. Its consciousness and its body are aligned. It's, it's one organism. But humans, we have this duality thing that our thoughts and who we are are somehow different or disconnected from our bodies, that there's two separate things going on. So we don't let the natural process unfold for many reasons that I'll get into. We don't allow this process to unfold. I have seen this in therapy once, where my client went into these large, just spontaneous gasps for air and, and had done some shaking um, when recalling a trauma and the moment where things really changed for that person. And, um, that person was, was in and aligned with their body enough and aware enough and allowed that process to happen. And, um, it was really interesting because the client was breathing, but it was more like, it wasn't a conscious choice to breathe. It was, it was as if the client was being breathed being breathed, not breathing, like it's sort of a difference there. My wife, um, she's um, a nurse, trained nurse, um, and she said that she's seen something's kind of similar to this to, with people in uh, during surgery, that there's this bodily process of being breathed. Like when people are under for surgery, that their body, she says it's weird, that their body is just sort of breathing. It's happening on its own. And she called it the operating system, like, like the raw operating of a computer, basically. So when I told her about my client and what I witnessed, she said, oh, you, you saw the, the operating system. That's the way she put it. So, oh, by the way, as I refer to like shutdown or to freeze or to immobilization, 
I want you to assume that I'm referring to this kind, the fear-induced tonic immobility. Um, just assume that I'm kind of talking about that unless I say otherwise. Um, I will talk about immobility without fear in a later episode. That's that's a whole separate thing. But uh, yeah, just, just, just saying. So yeah, see, my client go through that experience was, uh, for me, on my end, extremely new. Um, afterwards, I was really kind of gasping for air. I was okay, I, and I, I was, I felt fine, but I was more sympathetically, I think sympathetically, sympathetically charged, where I was taking some big breaths of air in, um, and it felt more like being breathed, in a way, um, and I think that was empathy or uh, just really our, our our nervous systems really kind of being in attunement. Um, it was it was quite an experience, but I I know that human beings can go through this. Uh, Peter Levine in his he has this famous example of his work with someone he calls Nancy, where he saw this for the first time. And what I experienced was extremely similar to what he describes and really went through the similar process of the person visualizing running. And I know I'm getting way ahead of myself. Basically just look up Peter Levine, the polar bear video, look up his work with Nancy and you'll get a better idea. But yeah, human beings I think can go through this bodily release of sympathetic energy and coming out of shutdown but we have all these things in place that we do to prevent that from happening not because we want to but we we do stay stuck in trauma so we do the fear-induced tonic immobility we are spooked by the uh the bodily sensations of coming out of immobility of out of shutdown we get sent back down the ladder when we when our bodies attempt to go up so when our nervous system attempts to go back up the ladder that freaks us out that scares us so we go right back down being sympathetically charged going from shutdown or even like when we go into fear induced shutdown going up to um fight mode flight mode like the sympathetic arousal it's scary it feels a lot different um it's it's not a safe experience so we go right back down and of course that means our bodies are stuck in a state of defense so the experience the pain, the sadness, the humiliation and disgust, embarrassment, the loneliness that stems from the traumatic event itself and the traumatic experience itself, it stays stuck within us. And we avoid these things, all these horrible feelings, the horrible feelings, they're they're natural in a way, uh, very natural, but the experience of them is is horrible. Um, But we avoid these because it's very vulnerable, it's scary, and some people say that they literally feel like they're dying not that they are dying but they feel like it feels like death there's stories and oh i'm sorry the ways that we stay stuck in trauma that we we have these stories and these beliefs that we create about the event or ourselves that keep us stuck in trauma we isolate ourselves to keep us in stuck in trauma and we keeping it a secret keeps us stuck in trauma and i'm sure there's more but those are the few that i could think of just off the top of my head so and i'm not saying that we do this on purpose no one likes this no one, it's not an enjoyable experience whatsoever. It's deeply painful. But the these are things that we, I think we naturally sort of, actually, I don't think naturally is the right word. But these are the things that we do currently. I think, especially because we have this sort of duality is split between our thought experience and our body experience as if they're somehow separate. I think that that split might be sort of the root of where all this comes from. I haven't thought that idea out much more further than that. So we'll, we'll keep it there. But, you know, if, if what I'm describing sounds like shame, you're on the right track. Shame and the components of shame 
keep us stuck in trauma. All right, so what is shame? Um, shame is shut down. I'm sorry, sh- shut down, fear-induced tonic immobility, fear-induced shutdown, and shame seem to go hand in hand. There, there's so many similarities between the two. There's the feeling of rejection. Um, shame is a feeling of rejection or disgrace or being worthless, being shut down, humiliated, embarrassment. It's an experience felt in the body. It is, um, oh, someone on Twitter used the word imprint. It was uh, Colbert, Andy Colbert. It's A-U-N-D-I-K-O-L-B-E-R. But it's, it's, it's an imprint. It's a, it's a, I think she said it's a neurological imprint. Shame is not an indication of weak character. It's got nothing to do with that. The experience of shame is not a belief either, uh, but it's part of a way of being. I think beliefs are part of shame, but shame itself is not like a belief issue. It's it becomes like it's a part of way of it's a way of being. Like someone is just shamed. Um, and shame, I think the important, really important thing here is that it's externally imposed onto the victim. So it comes from the outside to, into us. This can come from parents or teachers, abusers, but basically some, some some people or someone or a group of people who have some power over us. That shame is comes from a place outside of us of power. And of, so now the messages from these people are of course a reflection of their own state, their own state, but of course they hurt nonetheless and they become imprinted nonetheless. Shame is passed down. It's imposed from powerful other people through verbal messages, for example, like "What's wrong with you? Why can't you be like your brother?" or "You're such a blankety blank." Um, all those little things that parents say, in particular, um, those are shameful, and those little insults can build up over time. But those are just small day-to-day examples. Um, shame can also be imposed through abandonment. When you're abandoned, you're being rejected. You're being abandoned, obviously. Isolated, you're left alone, you're ignored. All of these feelings, these states are intrinsically linked to shame. Rejection, abandonment, isolation, being alone, being ignored. This is the experience of shame. Abandonment denies us maybe the most important mammalian need which is closeness family uh, safe touch and protection we don't get these things with shame and shame is imposed through the various types of physical abuse including sexual of course that these are actions and words from someone who has power over you or that you're dependent upon in some way or trusting of in some way and that trust or that dependence or that need or that connection is violated severely from someone who, you know from from that person of power or trust or even love so the shame comes from these people is passed down and taken into the person who uh, the, the victim of of the shame of the trauma the traumatic event we take these verbal these physical the neglect and the abandonment messages we take those messages in and they become part of our story. The messages match the state of shame. The, re- the rejection that you get from that powerful person, those messages match the state of your shame. You feel the shame. You experience and take in the shame and the messages that they say, like, what's wrong with you? Just to keep it light. Or why can't you be like your brother? Or you're such a blankety blank. Those messages 
match. They make sense to the state of shame that you that you take on, un- you know, not not voluntarily, but that it's forced upon you. So, how many kids do you work with if you're a professional? How many kids do you work with that have been abandoned by a parent? Um, for me, it's darn near every single one. Whether that is literally like the parent abandoned them, mostly fathers, or through like emotional neglect or some type of abuse. Many, many, many kids I've worked with have been abandoned by a dad and mom has more emotionally abandoned them. So that's just, it's it's very common with the population that I've worked with um, pretty much the past 11 years. So shame is, is passed, and the, the, here's, let's get a little bit more specific. Shame is passed from another human being. I don't think that we would feel ashamed if we get mauled by a tiger. You know what I mean? Like that wouldn't cause shame. There's no connection there. There's no trust and love and it's definitely a position of power, but that's more of a, you know, primal, different kind of thing. But we feel shame from another human being. I'm having trouble. I can't think of an example where that wouldn't be true. I don't think we get ashamed if we get, you know, attacked by a, a pack of dogs. I don't think shame would be the right word for that. But by a parent or by a boyfriend or girlfriend who sexually abuses you, yeah, absolutely. That would result in a feeling of of shame. Not because you did something wrong. Shame is different than guilt. Um, Guilt is this internal, it comes from inside. This And it's, it's very subjective. But it's this internal, subjective knowing of having broken a personal or community value. That's the best way I can put it. Things like stealing or hitting or lying, these are common ways, right? But it's very subjective. So a gang member jumping a rival gang member, they don't feel guilt about that. that that's within the the um, the norms of the gang culture. That's, what, that's just part of being in a gang. You get jumped, you get outnumbered, oftentimes without um, expecting it. That's just part of it. So doing it to someone else doesn't bring a feeling of guilt. They might know they're breaking the law. They might know that their parents wouldn't like it, uh, but they wouldn't. They, I've never heard of someone feeling guilt about that. Or think about in baseball, um, su- using substances to enhance performance in baseball. This has been the norm in baseball since forever. I think they used to use, I think it was meth, methamphetamine, and steroids more commonly nowadays. I don't know where it's at right now, but um, you know the whole ba- uh, Sorry, the whole. Uh, Barry Bonds thing and Clemens, I mean, all, all that. Like, that was just commonplace. So did players feel guilty about using steroids and meth? Um, I, I don't I don't know, because it was the norm. It was just kind of the way things were, and they did that to keep up with, like, like batters would take uh, steroids because they knew the pitcher was was taking them as well. And they, they felt like they had to keep up. So I, I don't think it was an experience of guilt. Point being... Shame and guilt are not the same thing. Guilt is this internal, I've done something wrong. I know, I know I've affected someone that, that, that I care about in a negative way. I know I've harmed them in some way. Shame is this thing that comes from the outside and becomes a part of who you are, but it's forced upon you. It's not an internal knowing. And, it doesn't, and I think guilt requires empathy. And uh, I and an understanding of someone else and how you affect them, but shame I, I don't think works the same way. It's it's imposed upon you through power, 
and violations of trust and love. There is a biosocial function of shame. Peter Levine says, shame is, he says, shame is one of the basic biological responses that social animals need to organize into groups, into hierarchies. He says it's a break. It stops everything in action. But he also says that shame is meant to be repaired. So what's he saying? He's saying that shame has a biological function to help society sort of organize. And when, when shame is imposed, it can stop whatever is happening in the person that receives it or takes it on. But that the people who impose the shame need to repair it. So, uh, but also, but if we don't do that, if we don't repair it, um, or if it doesn't get repaired, the shame that is felt can be reinforcing of the trauma state, okay? I think this is important to talk about. There is a function of shame. The, the shame is within us. The feeling of shame or the, the the potential to feel shame, it's there for a reason. Like It could actually be there for a reason that it's this biosocial function to help us organize into uh, groups or hierarchies like Peter Levine says. So it's there for a reason, and it, it does serve some sort of function. That's different than having it imposed upon you through a violation of your trust. That's a lot different than a parent sending their kid on timeout. So I don't recommend using shame. I think it's way too easily abused, and it can come from a very dark place. Um, and I know just because it's been around forever doesn't mean that it needs to continue. But like I said, timeouts is a pro probably a modern-day example of using a little bit of shame to correct behavior, which then should then be uh, repaired, though the, the shame should be repaired. I don't know how far I want to go into this, but I don't think timeouts, nah, I'm not going to go into I don't think it's worth going into right now. But I think it's a very clear modern day example. A child um, breaks a serious house rule, like, I don't know, swearing or hitting somebody, and the parent sends them over on timeout. So literally they're being sent off, they're being cast away, and there probably is a very, there's a, hopefully a small and manageable feeling of shame that they go through. After the timeout's over, one minute per year of life, after the timeout's over, the parent says, I love you. Let's talk about what happened. What can we do better next time? I expect the best out of you. And, you know, you mean a lot to our family. So they're repairing the shame. That there's a function for it. That That's kind of the idea that I think Peter Levine was talking about. And that's an example, I think, modern day. There's, I think, way better options than punishment and timeout. Uh, but I'll save that for another day. So, but the the idea here is small doses of shame that are repaired. That there's there's it might be a function for it, but we don't do that. So when we get traumatized, or when there's a traumatic event, our body shifts down the way 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 down the ladder into that fear induced tonic immobility or in a shutdown. When we go way down there, we we take on the shame from the person who is forcing it upon upon us. We, like so, we, there there is a natural function to feeling shame but this is obviously these situations that i'm talking about are obviously a betrayal of that potentially natural function okay that's someone who is feeling shamed and all kinds of other issues forcing that upon the victim so we have these things that reinforce our shame and trauma state remember story follows state our brains are meaning making machines there's an attempt to place meaning onto the situation to make sense of it. Uh, Self-blame. Self-blame is part of the story of the state of shame. Self-blame would be like, I should have fought back, or I shouldn't have made him mad, 
Or why didn't I tell someone the first time it happened? Like that's self-blame. You're blaming yourself. And that self-blame reinforces the state of shame, which reinforces the state of your nervous system way down in shutdown mode. There's other stories. Um, that's, that's one type of shame-reinforcing story. Another type of shame-reinforcing story is rationalizations, saying things like, it's because of the way that I look, uh, or that's how men show love, or, well, that's enough. But these are, these are stories to explain the state of the autonomic nervous system. These reinforce the shame, which reinforces the autonomic nervous system. But these are stories that we come up with to explain why we're in shutdown mode. Story follows state. And the last one I'll talk about real quick is shame-based beliefs. These are beliefs. Shame-based beliefs, right? Things like I'm unlovable, I'm unattractive, I'm defective, or I shouldn't have been born, and so on. Stuff like that. All of these things, the beliefs, the rationalizations, the self-blame, these things reinforce, these are shame-reinforcing stories. Let's talk about the experience of shame. People who are in a state of shame, they want to disappear. They, they become physically, in, in person, they become physically smaller. They tuck their head in, they curl their shor- shoulders inward, it's kind of like a hunched look, their legs are crossed, their feet are pointed toward each other, hands are in their lap, or underneath their legs. There's a feeling of being inferior, of worthless, of self-loathing, loneliness, emptiness. Commonly addiction, uh, compulsions to do certain behaviors. Um, self-denigration, like putting yourself down. Anxiety, depression, perfectionism. Codependency, more um, feelings of disgust. A loss of dignity. Feeling dirty or lonely or isolating yourself. Obviously, like I know you're hearing it, there are obviously some big ties here to the shutdown state. But let's talk about disgust real quick here. Disgust is a natural biological function to get rid of something that is potentially damaging or toxic. So again, this is Peter Levine saying these things. Peter Levine saying that there's a natural biological function for disgust. Like it's there that the, the ability to feel disgust is there for a reason. And it serves an evolutionary benefit to us, just like shame may have. So think about like eating some unsafe food that may have gone rotten. If you show disgust and spit it out, if you get it out of yourself, there's a social benefit to others around you. Well, you 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 will have a better chance of living if you're able to uh, get something out of you through disgust. But other people around you will see that and they'll know, oh, I better not eat that thing too. Disgust then, for our purposes, and it's, it go like disgust. It really goes like I said is is part of the experience of feeling shame. But disgust is a way to get out the shame. Peter Levine says it's the gatekeeper to other emotions. Shame is internalized, right, from externally to internally, from someone else to us. Shame is internalized. The antidote then is to externalize it to get it out of you, and the feeling of disgust is part of that. Okay, so shame is internalizing someone else's shame who is inflicting it onto a victim, but disgust is the body's signal to begin the process of healing. But we avoid this natural feeling. Our, this is our body's way of telling us something that disgust, and we avoid that because it's a very difficult feeling. It's, it's very uncomfortable. 
so I know, of course, that there's a you're hearing the trauma and shame connection, and it's they go hand in hand. There's a direct connection. Uh, Mary Lamia from Psychology Today, check the description. There's a link to the article. She says when children are emotionally or physically abandoned or abused or neglected, they often take on the shame that belongs to the adult who left or hurt them by assuming that it's because they themselves are the bad one. So they take the shame on and they create the story to follow the state. And the story is that I'm the bad one. It's Shame doesn't just occur. It doesn't spontaneously occur. It's the result of abuse. It's a result of someone violating your trust or your love or or, or just violating you, your, your space, your, your physical space, your safety. Peter Levine says there's a very particular body posture and autonomic pattern. He says very similar to what you see in trauma. This is the posture of collapse, like I, I explained before, of, of that wanting to be invisible, of being smaller, um, avoiding eye gaze, wanting to hide. A lowered capacity to think. That's trauma and shame. Um, there's a lowered capacity to think clearly and use the executive functioning. With both trauma and shame, there's problems um, orienting to the moment and orienting and, and, and seeing environmental safety. So it seems to me, taking all these pieces together, it seems to me that the freeze state is a neuroception of life threat. And it sends, so the neuroception, remember, is we pick up on danger cues. So we neurocept that there's a life threat, which, which sends us down into freeze state, which is a protective and survival bodily response, right? Shame is one of the experiences of freeze, which is induced by a life-threatening situation from another human. Similar to like how anxiety may be the experience of flight, or one of them, and aggression could be one of the experiences of fight. So shame could be one of the experiences of being in a fear-induced freeze state, where you're sympathetic and shutdown mode are activated at the same time. Self-blame is the narrative of the experience of the state of shame and freeze. And disgust is the attempt to rid the body of the shame and and also to kind of warn others around you. Does that make sense? Hopefully, hopefully all the pieces came together there. Hopefully that makes sense to you. But it, to, I, like I feel like I, I, I'm putting together the pieces that there's um, a sequence here. Let, let's look at the sequence of state shifts here. Right? This is what normally happens um, in the body with neuroception based on danger. Right. So if the first one is there's a body perception, a neuroception of danger. That could be internally or externally. What happens after that is that we use our face and our voice to negotiate safety, to sort of talk ourselves out of the situation if we can. If that doesn't work, we remove our social engagement system and our heart rate goes up, which means our sympathetic nervous system kicks in. Flight and fi- I'm sorry, flight is our first response to escape and get to safety. If that doesn't work, fight is the second response if we need to. And if that doesn't work, then the parasympathetic kicks in, which means we go into shutdown or the free state. Um, the state shift is the most important thing here, not the event. In this in this sequence of events, right, the state shift, how we move down the ladder, that's the most important thing. 
Um, I use this when processing with clients. I, I bring this up pretty frequently to, to have a nice, clear, concise idea and language. But so identifying the state shift is very important. Anyhow, so that's the, that's the normal sequence of responding to various levels of danger, safety, life threat, right? But the trauma sequence of state shifts is a little bit different. So the first off, same thing, there's some sort of neuroception of danger. Uh, and so we use our face and our voice to try to get to safety. If that doesn't work, we take away social engagement, heart rate goes up, sympathetic nervous system kicks in, same thing. And in situations where it's a life threat, sympathetic nervous system kicks in and the parasympathetic nervous system of shutdown mode or freeze mode kicks in at the same time, simultaneously. So sympathetic, the flight fight, so flight flight plus freeze, like all at the same time, sympathetic plus freeze, okay? That with that parasympathetic is also like a dissociation, a shutdown, and a numbness. So that's the state that we're in is this sort of numb, dissociated, shutdown, fear-induced, a lot of fear as well, state. And that state that we go into with fear-induced shutdown, that state that we go into is reinforced by shame, shame-fueled beliefs and rationalizations and self-blame, and plus isolation and denial, keeping things a secret. All of these things keep us in that state of fear-induced tonic immobility or fear-induced shutdown. Here's what I want you to do with this information. This this has been a pretty heavy one. Um, I'm sure some pieces fell into place. Um, Hopefully this was valuable and useful but I'm willing to bet some pieces fell into place for some of you. So here's what I want you to do with this for this information. For professionals, I want you to realize that the people that you're working with and serving are already in this state of deep shame. So the, the blame they experience, the judgment, the wanting to hide, that's where they are. They're already there. So for teachers, let's make sure that we're in a safe and social state when we engage with our students. Let's, let's not pile it on. And I don't think anyone sets out to do so, but, you know, like no one's perfect. We, we get frustrated. We get in these states or we go down the ladder and they pick up on this. But there's, there's students in your classes that are already in this state of being in shutdown and, and, and being in a state of shame. I know, and so do you, but I know and I hear it from them in therapy and it runs super deep. They feel it deeply. They, so they're picking up on your cues of disappointment or burnout or frustration. And, and they take those cues inward. It reinforces their state of shame and shutdown. They see those cues and the story that's created is, is a reinforcement. They know they've messed up. I talk with them and I hear them. They know they messed up. They, they know they came in late. They know they missed the assignment. Or they did something dumb. They like they know. They know. And they'll put it that way too. Like, yeah, that was stupid. I should have done that. So they know. Um, I would really encourage teachers and professionals to um, instead of jumping to blame, to come at it from a place of curiosity. Like, I, I really believe in you and you're falling short of the goals I know you have for yourself. What's going on? Like, how can I help you meet your goals rather than why weren't you in class? Or making a sarcastic comment when they come in late. Um, and of course, I know to your listener, you wouldn't do that, but some teachers do. But how about for my fellow therapists and social workers? 
I'm really going to encourage you to hear these judgments and the shameful need to hide. I want you to hear those. And I want you to point it out when you see it, but I don't want you to argue with it. That, that's what I'm going to recommend. I'm not saying it's the cure, but um, we can't talk them out of shame and these self-blame things. I don't think we can talk them out of it. I think it's useful to like reason with it and kind of question it and, you know, but we, we, it's, I don't think we can reason, I don't think we can talk people out of or argue them out of these states of shame or these beliefs of shame. I like to catch it and just notice that what they're expressing is normal, like being alone or feeling dirty, but that they're adding on to the state of shame and shutdown by judging or blaming themselves. So at least just to be aware of that and notice that, that there's a process happening. And of course, we, we always want to help. And, the, and so we, I think we attempt to argue against the beliefs and the rationalizations and to talk people out of things. And it comes from a place of wanting to help. But um, we have to realize that that's not the issue. That's 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 um, a piece of the puzzle, but it's reinforcing of this. It's the story of Paul's state. So, and it's understandable that they're doing these things. That that survivors do these things. That our clients are doing these things. These are normal people that have survived something abnormal. But like at least let's let's just notice. I want you, to fellow therapists, social workers, to notice what's happening in session. And to listen for these these uh, stories and judgments and self-blame. And to realize these are components of shame. I also like to normalize the heck out of this response to, to the experience. To normalize the heck out of the state shift going down the ladder and the experience of shame. Not that it's like a good thing for them to feel that way. But it's normal. I know it's not pleasurable. It's normal. But it, it indicates... The shutdown and the shame, even though it's painful, it indicates that their bodies worked, that they did what they were designed to do. They survived. They got through the situation. So I normalize the heck out of that. Um, I also like to ask permission to, because not everyone can just turn off the shame, right? But uh, so what, sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I like to ask permission to be someone in their life that won't judge or shame them. I point that out and I, and I, you know, I realize like you're not in that place right now. Is it okay if I am for you? You know, just to kind of get the ball rolling, just to kind of get the experience out there. And it's always a yes. Like, yeah, that, that is a very silent, like, nod of their head. Like, yeah, that, that'd be fine. So I may not be able to make them stop being ashamed. I, I don't have control of that, unfortunately. But, but can I hold the positive regard for them? Is it okay if I look at you in a very positive way? As someone who is normal that survives something abnormal, can I look at you as, as a survivor? So I normalize the heck out of that stuff, and if they're not able to tolerate that, I ask permission to be the one to start to do that, and that's always a yes, and we kind of get going from there. And for survivors, I'm going to ask you to know that you survived, or that you are surviving. I'm going to ask that you realize or, or start to accept that your body did what it was supposed to, and that is amazing. It was normal. What you went through was abnormal. The way your body responded was normal. It was normal. It is normal still. It's expected. I don't blame you. And you are normal. You're a normal person that survived something abnormal. And I love when I say these things out loud to clients that they look at me and, and I, they say, no one has ever told me that I'm normal before. So they, they get quite the opposite from all angles. 
but a number of them have said, no one has ever told me I'm normal. I, I can't imagine that. The isolation and the pain that goes along with never feeling normal. But hey, your, your body survived. It, 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 it worked. I know it doesn't take away the pain, but I hope that it at least normalizes the experience of it. And, you know, episodes one through five, I hope that you see, if you're a survivor, where you fall um, through the process on the ladder um, based on whatever your experience or experiences were or are. But you're normal. You know, if no one else is saying it, I want to be the one. You're normal. You survived or you are surviving. So do me a favor, if this was a challenge for you, I want you to take care of yourself right now. This is for everybody. Take care of yourself right now. Say hi to someone now, please, um, if you can. Smile at someone if you can. Go to someone you know you'll get eye contact from if you're able to. Look in the mirror and say hi. Tell yourself that you're forgiven for all the self-blame or the negative beliefs. It was normal to do so, but it's not necessary anymore. And if you can, if, there's, if it's at least within you a little bit, Forgive yourself a little bit if you can. But at least look in the mirror and say, you know what? We're we're cool. I can't forgive you for everything. I'm still a lot of pain, but we're cool. Like we'll get there. Please. There's there's links in the description if you need them. You know, please seek out some help. There's some crisis numbers, suicide numbers. I think some of them are like there's a texting um, number you can do. Um, so reach out if you need it with the, for those resources. And thank you so much for listening. This podcast is growing very quickly. And I am extremely humbled, extremely excited. And uh, just thank you so much, everybody, for being a part of that. There's a lot more to go. So thanks so much for listening. I hope it's brought you some value. If you have a question about anything, I'd love to hear it. And that includes any feedback, negative feedback, too. If I got something wrong, I want to know. So email me, justinlmft at gmail.com. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter, justinlmft, or my website, justinlmft.com. Did I say my email? is justinlmft at gmail.com. My website is justinlmft.com. Thank you so much. 